0: Welcome back to Bible Time, Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. He goes on to say, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. He goes on with that explanation. We'll be jumping into this study here in Thessalonians chapter 2. Lord willing, we'll be diving in to this look at the tribulation period and this exhortation from the Apostle Paul. Without this, in First and Second Thessalonians, you cannot and will not rightly divide the word of truth regarding. End Times Events. Now as we get started here, I want to remind us um, all that we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. The Bible's clear there in 1 Corinthians 13, that this word of God, the glass, which fits typology all throughout scripture, the women donated their looking glasses and Moses turned them into the laver, the golden laver that the priests would wash at before going into the tabernacle. To the holy place to set the showbread in order. And this looking glass, the Word of God, is a glass that we see through darkly. It's not a dark glass. It's a glass we see through darkly. It's a perfect glass. It accurately and perfectly represents exactly what God wants it to represent, but we see through it darkly. It is exactly what God wants it to be perfect and pure, and even here in our Authorized Version Bible, preserved perfectly, immaculate without error for us today, the perfect Word of God lacking neither jot nor tittle, just like Jesus Christ said, but nevertheless, it is a glass, and it is not the actual face of the Lord Jesus Christ, though it is our equivalent in this day. You might say, somebody might accuse one of worshiping the Bible, who truly loves the Bible and follows the Bible. Well, it is all we have of Jesus Christ to have and to hold on this earth is the Word of God. Somebody says, well, I have Jesus in my heart. don't need the Bible. You don't know Jesus at all. If you think that you know Jesus, but you don't have, don't love the Bible. If you say you love him, but keep not his commandments. The Bible says you are a liar. And guess where his commandments are? In the Bible, if you don't love the Bible, if you don't hold the Bible, if you, don't, if you don't obey the Bible, if you are a rebel against the Bible, you can say you've got something going with Jesus, you can say you're walking with Jesus, but you're a liar. And the Bible says, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So beware to those that would take and throw away the Bible and claim to have a relationship with God apart from the word of God, such is an absolute impossibility. A biblical inconsistency that will end you up in the lake of fire. So here in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Now here, this glass that we see through darkly until we see Jesus Christ, the the complete fulfillment embodiment of the written word and the physical word in one, the written physical word and the living eternal word of God, which they're, they are one. Listen, if Jesus Christ is one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit of God and their words are pure and perfect through all generations, you can't separate God from his word, and you can't. But there is a fact that the actual leather-bound book that you have with the pages in it, with the black ink on it, is not Jesus Christ himself. But the words that that book contains are his words. And therefore, since they are quick and powerful, as the Bible says, as you read those words, the physical book not being Christ, the contents of that physical book are Christ. How about them apples? Apples. As they say, the contents of that physical book are Christ. Let that sink into your skull and hopefully down into your heart. So here, Jesus Christ, who gave us this word, who gave us this glass to look in, tells us through his apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians that we see through this glass darkly. And so therefore, as they would say, it behooves us. It is important for us. It is becoming for us. It is right for us to be humble when we approach the word of God and we approach things that we can't see very well in the word of God. Now, the limitation here is not God. The limitation here is us. Now we see through a glass darkly. It is not God's fault that we have trouble understanding Him. It is not God's fault that we have trouble understanding the Bible. It is not God's fault that eschatology is hard to follow. It is our fault that we see through a glass darkly because we are not like Him. You see, look at it. What it says right here. It says, for for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. The Bible says, when I when we see him, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And when we see him and we are like him, we will understand, and the Bible says we will know all things, that the full understanding of the revelation of God will break in our consciences the day that we are resurrected or raptured up to be united with. With the Lord. Whenever we go to be with Jesus Christ, we will be like Him, and we will have the full revelation. Until then, we will see darkly. So, Here's the next thing that we do. The next thing that we do is we take this verse and we and we kind of make the Bible like a crystal ball and you've got to rub it just right and you've got to say the right magic words and you've got to go to the right university and you've got to consult the right mages and magicians and wise men and astrologers to get their take on what the text says and you've got to read the right Hebrew and Greek scholars and you've got to look through all the smoky fog and talk to the mystic gypsy lady that's sitting there with her long fingernails and her bandana around her head in order to get any kind of understanding of what this spiritual book is actually saying. And that has nothing to do with what God's saying. That is making the Bible metaphysical, mysticizing the Bible, making it a non-reality. What do you see in a glass? When you look in a glass and you see through a glass, you see objects that on the other side, if you're seeing through it, and if they're using it reflectively, and you see through the glass to the objects that are reflected, apparently on the other side, you are seeing literal objects. Now, your view of those objects may be distorted because of your inability to see all the spectrum of light. For one thing, you may lack some of the spectrum. You may lack some of the perspective. You may lack ability to see clearly when you look in that glass. By the way, the Bible using this word glasses, the looking glasses would be like mirrors, and they would take a piece of fine metal, such as gold, if they could afford it, and they would beat it flat and then polish it smooth and keep polishing it until it would reflect and they could see themselves in it. And you can polish that thing, you can polish gold up until you can see yourself in the gold almost perfectly, except that the color will be changed a little bit. By the way, the purer the gold, the less yellows in it. The purer, the gold; the clearer, the picture. So this, by no means, is saying that the picture would be distorted or wobbly, as some people have said. Some people have tried to paint it. They say in the old times they had cheap mirrors that they would beat out of metal, and so there'd be pits and there'd be wobbles, and it'd be hard to see yourself clear. Well, some of you out there are using Bibles with some pretty bad pits and some pretty bad wobbles, but you can get a pure gold, uh, a pure gold Bible. The words of the Lord are pure words as gold purified in a furnace seven times. You can get an authorized version Bible and you've got a high quality, high purity glass that you can see through and you can see wide open and clear. You can see what God wants you to see, but... You see darkly, which means that there is there's perspective, there's spectrum, there's areas that are withholding from our sight because of our own human limitations. And so as we approach this study on eschatology, we need to remember that while we have a perfect Bible, and while the Bible is perfectly accurate, yet there are things that we see darkly. As we jump into some scriptures today, we're going to look at how the master, Jesus Christ, preached about some eschatology, and we're going to see today, Lord willing, that Jesus Christ purposefully convoluted the situation or the discussion. Jesus Christ purposefully, multiple times, would say things in a way that would confuse people so that they would have to seek his face. Now, I know that's not the Jesus that's been portrayed today, but Jesus said to his disciples after he preached on the parable of the sower, and they asked him, why do you say these things? Jesus said, I preach I preached to them in parables, I speak to them in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not hear. He said, lest at any time they should hear with their ears and see with their eyes, believe in their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. That's a rough paraphrase of it, but Jesus will give you, as they say, as many preachers have said, enough rope to hang yourself with in the Bible. God has purposefully made the truths of the word of God mostly hidden. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, the natural man cannot receive the things of God. These are foolishness unto him, and he cannot discern them. They're spiritually discerned. And so as we enter into this this study, remember that the reason we see through a glass darkly is not because God's unfaithful, and it's not because his word is not pure, and it's not because he has failed to tell us what we need to know. It is because we have limitations. We have human limitations. We have physical limitations. We have sin limitations, and we have our own experiences that and our own wisdom and our own understanding that gets in the way of truly understanding the word of God. It's also important to know that whenever you deal with end times events, Jesus Christ said that of that day and that hour knoweth no man. There are things that God has withholden. There are things that God has not revealed. And so as you get into this study, the more you learn, the more you're going to learn there is to learn that you can't learn that God hasn't shown you. And is a real danger and a real pitfall to try to go in and explain things that God doesn't explain. To go in and go beyond the scope of scripture in your explanations, in your prophecies is very near to adding to the word of God. And if you add to the Word of God, God says He will add to you the plagues that are written in this book. This is a subject that must be dealt with carefully. This is a subject that must be dealt with um, thoroughly, and it's a subject that must be dealt with with humility, but it's also a subject that must be dealt with. You can't just stick your head in the sand and ignore it. The end times are coming. God has given us scriptures in the Bible to rightly divide to understand the end times. It's our job to get in the Word and study and find the one true biblical interpretation of the word of God, the scripture, interpreting the scripture. So let's look at some scriptures today. We've got several to look at as we look here in Second Thessalonians he says, we beseech you, brethren. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. We're going to focus on that gathering together unto Christ here in our lesson today. He tells them that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now this gets into what many people have called the blessed hope of the church. The New Testament church here has the hope of the gathering together unto Christ, also known as the catching up, the catching away. <coughs> Some people have talked about this as the rapture. How many of you have heard of the rapture of the church? Anybody? The rapture is has a meaning. The word rapture basically means a spiritual ecstasy. It means a spiritual high like no drug can give you. It means that you are um, caught up caught away Now, this whole idea is applied physically as well as spiritually, so that word rapture is a doctrinally accurate word to use, but it is not a word that is found in the Scripture. The closest being ravished. Really, ravished being more of what someone does to another instead of the reaction of one to another. But the word rapture here, the closest one would be ravished, to be overwhelmed, to be overtaken, to be completely caught away. You would use the rapture. Rapture for a person that is about to get married okay and so here she is we've got a young lady about to get married next Sunday uh, or next Saturday uh, there at our church and whenever her husband-to-be comes around she experiences apparently a degree of rapture she gets um, flighty she gets nervous doesn't she she starts acting differently. She starts saying things differently. Her mind goes to anything but what is at hand and goes to him that is at hand instead of the things that are at hand. And that's how it ought to be. And that's a good thing. And you see that in love. You see that whenever a man and a woman are coming together in holy matrimony. They're about to be married. And you see this where they're raptured from the world in their love for one another. And that is how this term is used by the church. This historically, that's what this term why this term would be used because the rapture of the church is the coming of the bridegroom for his bride. It's whenever the bridegroom shows up to take the bride away and she's been working on her trousseau. She's been putting away quilts. She's been putting away utensils. She's been preparing for the day. She's been sewing and prepping and doing everything that she can do and setting back for that day that her groom will come and take her home to be his own lawfully wedded wife. Thank you. The cat and they too shall be one flesh, the Bible says, of the man and the woman that God created. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. The rapture of the church is the marriage of the church, the consummation of the church. That's why this term is used. And this term is a very biblical term. Jesus Christ called himself the bridegroom multiple times. John the Baptist called, himself, called Jesus Christ the bridegroom he said of the bridegroom he said that the friend of the bridegroom rejoices when he hears the voice of the bridegroom jesus christ is the bridegroom coming for his church and when the church the bride of jesus christ sees jesus christ coming for her rapture is a good word to describe what the bible calls a catching up being caught away A being ascending to meet him in the clouds of glory that the Bible clearly teaches that the church will do. When that happens, you will not be thinking about your knitting or crocheting that got left in the chair when you get caught up. You will not be thinking about the bread that's baking in the oven that's going to burn. You will not be thinking about the car that you were just driving and what's going to happen to it. You will not be thinking about your bills that you were trying to pay. You will not be thinking about your sick loved one in the hospital. You will be thinking about Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing that a bride, whenever she's about, to get married can forget everything else in her life there can be people that are sick and she'll feel sorry for them but ultimately she just doesn't have much heart left to pour out on that sick person there'll be somebody that may die that she knows and that's a tragedy but deep down her heart is fixed on her groom and her heading is fixed her direction is fixed you know it's almost impossible to stop a marriage once it gets going you get those announcements out, and everybody says, we can't make it to the marriage that day. Can you reschedule? Your Any bride that's really in love is going to say, no, I want to get married. Come if you can. I'm getting married. And that's how it's going to be for the church when Jesus Christ comes. It doesn't matter if anybody is going to show up. It doesn't matter if the wedding dress is just right. It doesn't matter if anything else is the way that people think it ought to be. When the bridegroom comes, the bride is going to be in rapture her heart, her head, everything about her is going to be given to the groom and she will be in rapture, this gathering up, this catching away. Now this word rapture is used in scriptural eschatology in the study of end times events to mean this catching away and when this happens we'll find that old Demas, he may scoff at it because he loves this present world. Old Diotrephes may pout because half of his congregation that he had in bondage has Suddenly disappeared from under his long nose. Old Alexander and Hymenaeus will make YouTube videos and podcasts exposing the fake rapture and talking about the giant conspiracy theory that evangelicals put on. But we who are alive and are remain go to go to First Thessalonians. It won't matter what Alexander says. It won't matter what Hymenaeus says. It won't matter what Diotrephes says. It won't matter what Demas has said here in First Thessalonians chapter four. It says in verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Whatever your theology is, whatever your eschatology is, whether you agree or disagree, if you are part of the church, if you are part of the bride, when you are caught up to meet the Lord, you will not be arguing about your eschatology anymore. And if you're down here on earth with the rest of the theologians, you can have this old world with devil's filled, You can have your theology. It will suit you well. You can have it. The tree huggers can have it. They'll shout and dance with glee. Won't they be glad to get rid of those conservative Christian evangelicals who keep on showing up at their events and telling them they're on their way to hell. Why do those people have to come with their negative vibes and mess up our good time that we're having? Well, they're going to have their good time. And you know what? They can have it. The bride's not going to be worried about the tree huggers anymore. The the bride's not going to be worried about the liberal agenda anymore. The bride's not going to be worried about communist takeovers anymore. The bride is going to be looking at the bridegroom and it's going to be rapture. It's going to be ecstasy. We're going to see him and we're going to know him and we're going to be known by him and we're going to be one with him in a way that we've never even been able to comprehend on the, as living in this body on this earth before. We're going to be with Christ the air and they can have this old world as they say it can go to hell and it's going to someday it is going to this old world is going to be burnt up Now I know there's some whole, you can get into the whole doctrine of hell and find some errors in some of my expressions there, and I pray that you'll just forgive me on that. We'll straighten it out whenever we get to preaching on hell someday. The drug dealers, the child traffickers, the drunkards, the rapists will clap their hands with glee, and they'll shout little happy songs, and they'll go to their parties and they'll have their guess what? They'll go to church and have their contemporary worship services and they'll sing hallelujah I love you Jesus and all this kind of stuff and they'll have their lights and their fog and their smoke and they'll have all their churches and they'll say we finally got rid of those rotten Bible thumpers we finally got rid of those extremists those radicals that believe the Bible we can get down to having church now we're really going to usher in the kingdom of Christ and they'll go on with their theology and they'll go on with the church and they'll go on with their liberal agendas and they'll go on with their raping. Just like the Bible says, they'll go on with their marriages. They'll go on with life as if it happened. So do you know, I'm going to submit something to you today. I want you to know something that the rapture of the church is going to be the rapture of the world. There's going to be ecstasy all over this world when the rapture happens, at least for a short time. That old grandma that's been bugging you about the Bible, she's going to be gone. You get to do what you want. Your mom and dad that told you you need to repent and believe the gospel and straighten up your life, they're going to be gone out of the way. You get all their money. Woo! Party! The world's going to have a party. The world's going to have its own little rapture of sin. The world's going to have its ecstasy and revival of demonology and Satanism and wickedness. And that man of sin's going to be revealed like the Bible says somewhere along there after that rapture. Just like that Bible says. There's going to be a revival of false religion. There's going to be a revival of contemporary Christianity. It's going to go through the roof off the charts whenever that rapture happens. So there's going to be a rapture of the church, and there's going to be a rapture of the world when the rapture happens, (coughs) at least for a little while. Everybody's going to rejoice at the rapture, but then the darkness of the tribulation is going to settle down on the world. The darkness of the tribulation, the agony, men gnawing their tongues for pain. And call it on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The survivalists will finally dig into their stockpiles. The false church will come up with rabid explanations for their existence, tenaciously clinging to their self-righteousness putting out all of their amazing prophecies and healings and signs and wonders and lying wonders to try and convince people to keep coming until that glorious day of vengeance when God turns this wicked world loose on the harlot church and she's devoured by the beast and the false prophet. The preppers will be grabbing their bug out bags and running into the woods to hide from the beast They'll be getting chased down, left and right. And by the way, getting found left and right. Because nobody's going to hide from the Antichrist when he comes. We'll look at some of that, Lord willing, as we continue this study. Tribulation is going to be bad, folks. But the church is not going to be here. That's the whole purpose of what Paul is saying here in 2 Thessalonians. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. The opening event of the day of Christ is the rapture. Of the church. Let's look at a few other texts. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5. He speaks there in 4 of being caught up in together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In chapter five, he says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you for yourselves, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. He goes on with an exhortation to the church in that passage. Let's go to Matthew 24. Let's look at some of the words of Christ as we dive into this. When we beseech the Lord for humility, Father, in Jesus' name, help us, Lord, to be humble, to rightly divide your word. Help us, Lord, not to extend ourselves beyond the scope of your word. Help us to be accurate, Please open these scriptures to our understanding. In Jesus' name, for Christ's sake, amen. Here in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. This passage is paralleled. Sections of this are paralleled in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 17. And Jesus said unto them, verse 2, See ye not all these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now this greatly bothered the disciples. They were asking when the kingdom of God shall appear. If you look at the other passages that was their main uh, their main concern was not christ 's glory, it was rather the glorification of israel <clears throat> the restoration of the kingdom. They were extremely interested in this concept of Jesus Christ restoring the nation, the physical nation of Israel. And so whenever Jesus answered them with this thought that there would not be left one stone upon another, they were perplexed and puzzled. They were dismayed. This wasn't in their plan. This did not fit their eschatological framework. So they came to Jesus with questions. Three questions here in Matthew 24. Now, as if you study parallel, Mark 13 and Luke 17. It sheds some light on these as well. You must study scripture together. I haven't broken I haven't paralleled these out like I should and need to to do a full study on Matthew 24, partly because I'm not going through Matthew 24 right now. We're going through 2 Thessalonians right now. But these things do parallel out. Matthew 24 is the most comprehensive account of this discourse in fact if you look at mark 13 it's possible that what you have in mark 13 is jesus's similar remarks from a different preaching event you see it's a real trap to think that the um, books here are perfectly chronological and it's a real trap to think that because one gospel says jesus said what he said here that that means that He was saying the exact same thing over here. And now, I don't know if I'm making any sense. Am I making any sense at all? So, for example, let's talk about um, the fig tree is a really clear one. When Jesus cursed the fig tree. The fig tree is really clear. Jesus comes down to the fig tree, sees it, curses it. You can see the chronological events of the cur- of the fig tree being cursed. But whenever you read about for example, the parable of the virgins coming up in Matthew 25, did he say that ex- in the on the exact heels of Matthew 24? Was there time that took place between Matthew 24 and 25? We only have the context God gives us and we have to stick to that context but it is a real trap to make assumptions about the context. Do you follow what I'm saying? It is a real trap to make assumptions about the context. And what you'll do is you will box yourself in so until the devil can twist it and make you think that you've discovered a contradiction in the Bible when the reality is that you have discovered a contradiction in your perception of the Bible and in your assumptions about the Bible and in your preconceived notions about the Bible where you never found a contradiction in the Bible itself, but rather a contradiction in your misunderstanding of the bible which was inevitable whenever you make assumptions about the word of god you are you are teeing up the devil you're giving him a par 5 hole all he needs is a good golf club and he's going to go to the green and have fun with you stop making assumptions about the bible let the bible say what it says and make and make yourself submit to what it says do you hear what i just said Make yourself submit to what the Bible says. If the Bible does not explicitly say what you're trying to say, you better back up and you better take it carefully and you better find scripture lined up with scripture before you go running with it and make a fool out of yourself. Lord, help me to do the same thing. We're all guilty of this. We all do this kind of thing all the time, making assumptions about the Bible, making assumptions about the context. Sometimes it's really, really painfully obvious when a preacher does it, but other times it's not so obvious and it just gets absorbed into our doctrine. And then guess what the devil does? He says, ha, that's a good one. I've got a thousand churches believing this and there's no foundation for it in scripture. I'm gonna bring up this other idea from their idea. And next thing you know, this heresy springs out of this dumb idea. And then everybody's scrambling to try and figure out what happened. You end up with denominations being birthed out of the whole thing. And now you've got a whole new group of churches that believes the heresy because they implicitly believe the assumption. And you have a whole nother group of churches that doesn't believe the heresy because they were willing to repent of their bad assumption. And then you get a whole other group of churches that makes new assumptions to counter the false heresy that was birthed out of their assumptions instead of releasing the assumptions. And boy, does that get tricky and sticky fast. Because then you get multiple levels and tiers and layers of heresies and assumptions and misunderstandings and stupid ideas. And then people begin teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Get back to the Bible. Does the Bible say it? If the Bible doesn't say it, it doesn't matter how much sense it makes. It doesn't matter how much you think you've got it figured out. If the Bible doesn't say it, shut your mouth and get back to the Bible. Amen. So here in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking, there shall not be left here one stone upon another. Verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came upon him unto him privately. Again, we're not preaching this passage. We are going through this passage as it pertains to Second Thessalonians. So we're going to leave a whole lot out that needs to be dug, dug into deeper. He says, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be? Now this, I've never heard this preached anywhere else. Um, and I don't think I'm some super smart guy. I just think it's what the Bible says. And I think a lot of people have missed this. Might help you. I believe it will help you. I believe it helped me. Here we have an outline of Matthew chapter 24. In verse three, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So here are three questions that the disciples give and we can identify Jesus's main points in the next discourse by these questions because he directly addresses every one of these questions. But as Jesus was wont to do and um, regularly did it, it seems to be something that's common throughout the New Testament Instead of addressing the questions in the order they were given, he addressed the questions in the um, reverse order that they were given. Now, I could try and sound real smart and say it's the difference between Eastern thought and Western thought, but I don't really know, and I don't really care. I just want to know what Jesus was saying and what he meant. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. So he says here, tell us, the disciples say, when shall these things be? Question one, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Question two, and of the end of the world? Question three, that second question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Is the one that we're really interested in right now. The sign of Jesus Christ coming, (coughs) but to narrow it down, we need to do a little digging. Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Keep looking for the, the exact question in Jesus' answer. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. Which question is Jesus dealing with right now? Which question? We have three questions. Tell us, when shall these things be? Number one. Number two, what shall be the sign of that coming? Number three, of the end of the world. Jesus says, many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I'll stomp my foot for emphasis, but the end is not yet. Okay, Jesus just said something The that the disciples said. Scripture defines scripture. When you find parallel tracks in the Bible, run them together. Because they go together. Look at it. He says, the end is not yet. What question is he answering? Question one, question two, or question three? He's dealing with question three. You got it right. The end is not yet. So Jesus here begins the all of it discourse speaking about the end of the world. And I believe there's a real reason for this. You see, the disciples, they're looking for the restoration of Israel. And if you read about the restoration of Israel in the Old Testament prophets, it's very powerful, very wonderful study. But guess what it deals with? The end of the world. Because the restoration of Israel is post-tribulation. The restoration of Israel is premillennial, post-resurrection, or post-tribulation. So after the tribulation, before the millennial reign, we have the restoration of Israel as a nation. So that's coming right at the end of the world. But what the disciples didn't know was the tribulation was coming first. The disciples did not realize that there was a whole that there was a whole space of grace coming. The disciples didn't realize that the Jews were rejecting Christ. They kind of saw it, but they couldn't fathom it. They still thought there was going to be national revival. They still thought this thing was going to turn. They still thought Jesus was going to sit on the literal throne of David right then, right now. What they didn't realize was that there was a time of rejection of Messiah until the time that Messiah the Prince shall be cut off, said Daniel. And that he would not be cut off for himself. So Messiah the Prince was yet to be cut off. And Jesus was telling them about it, but they had missed it. And so here's this whole time frame of the Messiah being cut off in what Daniel called the time of the Gentiles being ushered in and this what would the time of the Gentiles be it was a mystery to the Jews they couldn't see it but what it was was what we call the age of grace the glorious age of grace where God would seek for himself a Gentile bride and that wasn't in their picture it wasn't in their eschatological plan now thankfully you don't have to be right about all your eschatology to be saved praise the Lord gonna be a lot of people caught up to meet the Lord in the air that didn't believe it was possible but guess what when it happens they're going to be in rapture and they're not going to care about all their bad doctrine that they held while they were on earth or their prepper bags that they left in their closets they'll never get to use they're not going to care they're just going to be glad to be with the Lord praise the Lord now Here, Jesus speaking of the end of the world first, starting at the end, is because Jesus is working from the disciples' context. He's working from their perspective. They asked three questions that they thought were concurrent. Do you follow that today? They asked three questions that they thought were together. They thought that these three things all go together, obviously, because that's how they had seen them when they read the Old Testament prophets. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Obviously, all these things go together. As Pastor Edges preached many times, they're looking out over the mountaintops of prophecy, and they can see the Mount Of these things being and the mount of thy coming and the mount of the end of the world and they're seeing them in the distance and the three mountain peaks look like they're right there together but the reality is that you've got to get to the one and then there's a long valley between the first and the second called the age of grace and then there's a valley between the second and the third called the tribulation period and these big valleys were outside of their view. They could not see it. They could not comprehend it. Again, thank God you don't have to know everything to be saved. You just got to know that you're a sinner. You're a wretch on your way to hell, and that the only way to please God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad that's true. But Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonican church so that they would not be shaken in mind. He said, listen, guys, I just wrote you a letter where I told you what's going to happen and I want you to be comforted with these words. Now I'm writing you another letter to reinforce it and tell you, listen, don't be shaken in your mind. Is that the day of the Lord? Is at hand? He said that day shall not come until these other events happen first which we'll study more, Lord willing, as we get into it. <coughs> so as he's encouraging the church, as Paul is, is comforting the church with these words and telling them the day of the Lord is not at hand yet, this is what Christ is also doing here in the, tw- in the 24th chapter of Matthew. He's, he's opening the disciples understanding that they do not have any ability to comprehend yet. So he's starting with the end of the world. Many shall come. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars and um, see that ye be not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. He goes on nation, rise against nation, earthquakes deliver you up to be afflicted. Many shall be offended and shall betray one another. Everybody says, that sounds like the tribulation. Yes, it does. But guess what? It also sounds like today. And I've preached before, the church is in tribulation. I do not believe the church is going through the great tribulation. I believe in tribulation now theology. That as many as live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, the Bible says. You're not, you're not being persecuted because you're not godly. Now, I'm not saying go out and get persecuted so you can prove to everybody that you're godly. Get godly, and I promise you on the authority of God's word, the persecution will find you. And you won't have to go out looking for it or trying to drum it up to make yourself look holy with a bunch of asceticism, masochism, self-inflicted punishment, penance, and all this kind of stuff. Persecution will find you if you follow the Lord. And there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's no qualifying on there for the American economy and Americans and all this kind of stuff. You say, oh, well, we would suffer persecution, but we live in a free nation. No, you would suffer persecution, but you love the world and you're part of the world and the world does not persecute its own. Jesus said to his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. There it is right there. Not persecuted because you're of the world. That's why. You get out of the world. You reject the world. You turn your back on the world. You follow Jesus. You shall suffer persecution. It's the way God said it will be. And God is always right. In the world, Jesus said, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now here in Matthew 24, many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. That is not talking about your salvation in Jesus Christ and hanging on to your salvation. That is talking about the physical salvation of your body. He that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. And by the way, the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. Those who are his do endure. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne be glory, said the prophet Jude in the New Testament. So here we have this tribulation now. These that endure to the end, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come. Now you say, wait a second, you said that's not tribulation. It applies to both. Jesus is starting at the end of the world. So the scope of this that he's looking at, this is really important here and this is hard for me to explain. Jesus, because I see through a glass darkly too, That's why I said we've got to have humility in this thing. Jesus is dealing with something where they don't see the space of grace. He's speaking to the Jews, but this passage, get this. If you can get this, it will help you. Get this. It applies to Jew and Gentile, but differently. There's an application of that. Endure to the end shall be saved to Israel. Okay, it's right there. Remember, he's talking to the Jews, but this end that's coming from the time Jesus said this on the Mount of Olives to the time of the end that's coming, there was there's so far 2000 years of the age of grace in the middle and all of that that Jesus just said applies to our time too. Now it's going to be multiplied in the tribulation. When Jesus starts directly speaking about the great events of the tribulation, um, he talks about. Eventually, the sun darkened, moon not giving light, stars falling from heaven, and stuff like that. So while this applies to the Jew in the tribulation, it applies to the church in the church's tribulation that Jesus Christ said, In the world ye shall have tribulation. Not the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble reserved for the Jew. But our time, it applies to us. Their time, it applies to them. You see, God is really efficient. Listen to me. God knows how to preach to multiple different people with the same message. God knows how to make applications to many people from the same single truth rightly divided that has one interpretation. So he says here, he goes on, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now he's getting again closer to the end and we see ourselves plowing through from the time of Christ on the Mount of Olives all the way to the abomination of desolation. That's mid-tribulation. And here's where people get all tripped up. They try to take this passage and forget all the other passages of scripture and apply this to the rapture of the church. But right here in the middle of the tribulation, you got the abomination desolation. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter nor on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days shall be short. Shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. So here Jesus moved through, and there's applications again to the church all through that. But the primary and only right interpretation is to understand he is talking to Israel here and that this goes from the time that Jesus spoke on the Mount of Olives all the way through the great tribulation. Now, he says in verse 23, then if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ or there, believe not. Now, then what is this then speaking of? How does this then apply? The then here, you could say, well, that's post-trib. And so now if you make this a rapture passage, now you have post-trib rapture of the church. And that's what a lot of people argue. And that's where you get a whole bunch of bad doctrine. Okay. There's two things to remember here. Um, but the, number one, he's speaking to Israel primarily. Number two, in this Matthew chapter 24, he's answering question number two, which was second chronologically. He's working backwards. Do you hear me? This The Olivet Discourse starts with the end of the world, the big picture from now to the end of the world, and then Christ backs up, To the sign of thy coming. In a little while, he's going to back up to the destruction of the temple and the stones being thrown down, and not one standing upon another. So, this is in. Reverse order, and again, the Bible defines the Bible so you can see it clearly. If you would like to, it's right there. Then, if any man shall say to you, "Lo, here is Christ," or there, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall so- show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall de- deceive even the very elect. Now, we've been working hard to get here. <clears throat> Here's of the sign of thy coming back in verse 3 we have three questions when shall these things be question number 1 what shall be the sign of thy coming question number 2 and of the end of the world question number 3 question number 3 was covered by Jesus question number 2 is now taken up here by Jesus the sign of thy coming and we have an absolute clear indication of it whenever you get down to finally to verse 30 and we're going to read down to that but jump ahead and get it and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven what did the disciples ask what shall be the sign of thy coming what did Jesus answer here finally in verse 30 and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven And again, this is the sign of the son of man to the Jew, primarily God speaking to Jewish men in a Jewish place about a Jewish kingdom that they were looking to and giving them light and understanding about eschatology as it pertains to the Jew. And if you can't, if you don't get that, you're going to be absolutely messed up. Now I know some people are going to see some things differently within this chapter, but I'll tell you one thing that you better not mess up and that's the bones of. Of it. That's the bones of it. The part that Jesus makes absolutely clear, which is the pre-tribulation rapture of a Gentile church and the post-tribulation rapture of the Israeli church. Ooh, now we've got everybody mad, right? Another rapture. Yeah, there's another rapture. We're going to see it here in just a second. So here there's a, um, there arise false Christs and false prophets and shall so, show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, verse 26, wherefore, if they say unto you, behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Verse 27, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And then he goes on in verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light. So here's lightning that comes out of the east, shineth unto the west, coming of the Son of Man, the carcass is there, eagles gathered together, and then a tribulation. And this is where, again, get this, this is where they use this after the tribulation of those days, and they try and mix up Scripture. But after this tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the first time in verse 27 that the son of man is said to come, he comes as lightning from the east to the west and in one of the passages, they say, where, Lord, he says, and he answers, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now, I heard this taught on once, and I thought the guy was far out. And I did a Bible study, and I ended up um, saying that I had to give him his point. If you look at this with Isaiah 40 and you look at the typology of eagles throughout the Bible and they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk as not and not faint. And other passages of scripture, these eagles here in typology are gathered unto the carcass, what is the carcass? The son of man the dead buried resurrected Jesus Christ again, why would he talk this way? Jesus is talking this way so that seeing you might not see hearing you might not hear you've got to want him you've got to want his word he's speaking in parables he's speaking in mysteries and right now they're looking for a they're looking for a king sitting on the throne of David and Jesus Christ says they're going to get a carcass. Instead of a king, you get a carcass. The lightning will shine from the east to the west, and that'll be as the lightning shines from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. This first coming of Jesus Christ for his church, this rapture of the church, we which are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be ever with the Lord. And so this coming of Jesus Christ for the church here is as lightning that goes from one side of heaven to the other. A couple things to observe, about lightning a lot of people most people miss most lightning strikes most of the time people miss the lightning shining from one side of heaven to the other and so it will be with this rapture of the gentile church i'll tell you who's not going to miss it though the jews aren't going to miss it the jews the The elect are not going to miss it. The elect are going to see the flash. The elect are going to know that the church has been caught up and they're going to know that they got left behind and they're going to clue in to what Jesus told them because Jesus wrote this for the Jew. And it's written in its context and in its entire direction and drive for the Jews so that the Jew knows what to do. And so here he's telling them immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days? The days that follow the coming of the Son of Man as lightning from the east to the west the rapture of the church after that rapture of the church immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken so the events of the seven year tribulation climaxing in the stars falling from heaven like wormwood in the book of Revelation these events that climax with the sun not giving her light nor the moon these events are then followed by the sign of the son of man in heaven why would Jesus answer it this way. They said, Lord, what's the sign of thy coming? Well, guess what? There's two comings of Christ in this eschatological sequence, eschatological sequence, however you say that. Christ coming for his church and Christ coming for the Jew. Now the Jews, they didn't get that. So if Christ had just said, pay attention here. If Christ had just said, The sign of my coming will be like lightning coming out of the east to the west. He left them confused. Because that doesn't line up exactly with most of what the prophets said, like Zechariah, okay? Whenever his feet shall touch down on the Mount of Olives, and the mountain will split and one part, go to the east and one to the west. Or is it to the north and the south? I think it's north and south. And a great valley will be made between them, and Jesus Christ will come back visibly, and all the nations of the earth shall mourn, the prophet said. So Jesus' explanation here that he gives the Jew shows them that there is a pre-tribulation rapture of the Gentile bride of Christ that they could not comprehend. You say, why didn't he spell it out? Because they wouldn't have got it if he'd spelled it out. It was too much for them. Then it was yet to be revealed in its fullness as we see all through the rest of Scripture. You say, ah, you're, you're cheating now. You're saying it wasn't revealed. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that there were mysteries, hidden mysteries, that were not revealed until the New Testament. And here we have the beginning of the New Testament. None of the Pauline epistles had been written yet. God had not given us the full revelation yet. And so here he gives the lightning coming out of the east, shining unto the west. Wheresoever the carcasses, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light. The stars shall fall from heaven, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound. Out of a trumpet. Get this. Get this. If You're going to get all mixed up if you don't just read your Bible and humble yourself and say, I don't know. and You try and figure out everything. You're going to be one tangled up ball of spaghetti noodles of doctrine. He says, he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And I can't tell you everything about that. I don't understand everything about this, but I do know this. In Revelation, there are 144,000 elect. And when he talks about the except those days be shortened, none should be saved. But for the elect's days, he shortened it. He's talking about Israel and this Israel. The doctrine of election, by the way, is primarily an Israel really doctrine. Primarily. Now there are applications to the church, but election is taught from a Jewish perspective whenever you read your Bible. Almost every time. Go to the great passages in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. The elect are the Jews. And it's amazing to me that people that want to preach election to the exclusion of the Jews use those very passages to their hurt. And they say that God's cast away Israel and that they're the elect and they missed the whole thing. Listen, Israel is God's elect. If God casts away Israel, his elect, then your election is in danger. Do you hear me? You undermine your whole doctrinal position whenever you throw Israel out. If God is unfaithful to Israel, God will throw you into hell, you dirty dog Gentiles. Do you hear me today? And I'm one of you. Listen to me today. If God casts away Israel, you have got no hope. Israel, his chosen, his elect. There's a remnant that to this day, according to the doctrine of election, I believe in election. I just believe in a Bible election. I don't believe in your little self help group elections where you vote down Israel and elect yourselves into some place of promised covenantal privilege so that you can get some kind of high minded, puffed up, proud, arrogant eschatology and go on to perdition. Now, again, you don't have to have all this stuff straight to be saved. Praise the Lord. But you get bad enough messed up on some of this stuff, and either you or your children or your grandchildren are going to wind up in the lake of fire because you will be end up preaching a whole other gospel. You go find out what the preterists have to say, and you'll find out a whole other gospel. You find out about some hyper Calvinist where they teach people not even to call upon the name of the Lord, but just sit around and wait on some boon from heaven. On some God reaching down and picking you up by the back of your neck and making you saved instead of going to God and seeking the Lord while he may be found and you take scriptures out of context and rest the scriptures and you leave out half of the bible to teach your pet heresies and you'll end up either going to hell yourself or if you're actually a christian your work will be burned and you'll suffer loss nevertheless your soul will be saved yet as it were by fire. Now, here Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. we got to move. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This lines up exactly with Revelation, where God gathers his elect Israelites at the end of the tribulation. And why were they scattered to the four winds? Because the 144,000 went over the whole earth preaching the gospel of the kingdom, particularly, which, by the way, the gospel's the gospel, okay? people didn't get saved differently in the Old Testament than they did in the New but the gospel of the kingdom is a different emphasis than the gospel of grace though they're both by grace you're saved by grace not of works and the gospel of the kingdom is the message that repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and during the great tribulation the 144,000 Jewish Israelites of the physical genetic seed and offspring of Abraham will go throughout all the earth 12,000 from each tribe, by the way, from Levi, from Judah, from Simeon, etc. These will go throughout all the world, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is coming soon. They'll be like those wise men. We've seen his star in the east. Only they're going to say, we saw the lightning in the heavens. He's coming! He's coming! Time is running out! Repent! The world's not going to listen to him. The world's going to hate him. Somehow they're going to survive because they're his elect. And he's going to shorten the days. And then guess what's going to happen? He's going to send his angels and they're going to blow a trumpet. And then these elect Israelites are going to be gathered from one end of heaven to the other. Another catching up. Interesting. Now learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So here, all of a sudden, comes the fig tree into this. Where'd the fig tree come from? We're talking about lightning. We're talking about the Son of Man. We're talking about stars falling from heaven. The sun not giving his light. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, this fig tree pops up in the middle of this discussion. How many questions do the disciples ask? Three. The first question, when shall these things be, has not yet been answered. The second question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? We just looked at. The third question, and of the end of the world, is how Jesus started. So right here in verse 32, he says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branches yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see, key words coming up, stomping my foot, flagging my hand, pay attention, when ye see shall see all things. These things. Which question does that apply to? Which question? They said, When shall these things be? Jesus says, When ye shall see all these things. You say, well, that's not very clear. He went from one subject to the other, and he didn't tell us he was changing points. Read your Bible. He doesn't. Jesus doesn't. That seeing you might not see and hearing you might not hear, you've got to seek it. You've got to search out the scriptures. You've got to study. You've got to rightly divide. You've got to compare scripture with scripture, or you will miss it. By the way, Jesus Christ, whenever he, sat, whenever he went to Nazareth and they gave him a scroll, he read a prophecy and he stopped in the middle of a verse, in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of the verse. For those of you that want to talk about when the verses were added and all that kind of stuff. He stopped in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a paragraph. And he said, this day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears but he was only talking about half the prophecy. Do you realize that God had an eschatological break of over 2,000 years sitting in the middle of a sentence? God doesn't make this plane because he doesn't want just just anybody to get it now i heard one guy say on the radio you've got to be really smart to be able to follow this eschatological philosophy that i'm about to share with you here today it will take the erudite and the knowledgeable and the scholarly and the learned and most other people aren't going to be able to keep up with me so good luck and i said good luck jack and i shut him off and you ought to too I'm not giving you something that is hard for a child to understand. I'm giving you something that's hard for everybody to understand, but that children can get. I'm giving you the simple word of God. I'm giving you, I, I hope and I trust and I believe the word of God rightly divided. And I have to say that very humbly, knowing my infirmity as a as a man with a body of death and a a glass that I see through darkly, though it be a perfect glass. So likewise, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verse 34, verily I say unto you, get this, this generation shall not pass till what? The sign of the son of man in heaven? No. The end of the world? No. Listen, what kind of an idiot would come up with this saying that this is talking about the end of the world? It's been 2,000 years. That kind of heresy completely undermines faith. And makes people throw away all of the literal interpretation of the word of God. And then guess what you're left with? You're left with the opinions of scholars that have to tell you what spiritually is being intended by what God literally said. And now you have no foundation at all. He says, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And that's where if you're not paying close attention, you go, whoa, James and John and Bartholomew, they're not going to pass until Jesus comes back and the sun falls and stops giving light and the stars fall from heaven and until the abomination of the desolation has already happened and all of this is going to happen before they die and you're going to be off in left field. You're going to be out there building a baseball diamond for a bunch of ghosts or something. Forgive the reference. You're going to be way out there in Lululand. But if you look and rightly divide the Word of God and look at these things and go back to how this all started and the key that God carefully put in the Word of God that unlocks the door of knowledge here and you see the outline of this text that Jesus is specifically answering the questions of his disciples and they said, When shall these things be? Talking directly and specifically about the throwing down of the great buildings of the temple. Now, as you study the parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 17, they're not laid out as comprehensively as Matthew, and you will gather light and you will be humbled. As I too am humbled whenever I read those passages to say, he didn't say it just exactly like he said it here in Matthew 24. Can you really be that dogmatic? I don't know about the part that I don't see very well, but I know about the part that I see. Does that make sense? The part that God's clear is the what I will hold to, and I will allow clear scripture to define unclear scripture. And when I don't understand a scripture, I'm not going to make it say whatever I want it to say. I'm going to wait on the Lord for clear leading. Maybe someday we'll get to Matthew 24 and study it directly verse by verse. I don't know what the Lord's plan is by that, but maybe we will. And if we do, we'll look carefully at each of these verses in their context and how they're held in similar context in their parallel passages and really get deeper in that study. And I'm sure there's things that I will see much more clearly whenever we go through that study. And I'm sure that you will too, if we go through that together, because the word of God is so deep that we cannot fathom its depths. But here, these things shall, he says, all these things, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Some people would say that this generation that he's speaking of here is not talking of a physical generation, but rather of a church age. And they would put forth that he's saying that this generation this church age generation will not pass. And you know what? Maybe that's there, but I'll tell you this, this physical generation did not pass away until all these things that Jesus had told them of the destruction of the temple did pass. That took place in AD 70. Whenever the buildings of the temple were thrown down by Titus and not one stone of the buildings was, was left standing. You could say, well, wait a second, down there in the Temple Mount, they've got the wailing wall. They've got some of the foundation stones of the the Temple Mount are still there. Jesus didn't say the Temple Mount was going to be destroyed. He said that all these buildings, there will not be one stone left, and there's not. Not one stone of one of those buildings is left. And that whole story is interesting. You can read it from history yourself. It's not in the Bible and we don't have time to dive into it, but how Titus destroyed that temple in 70 AD is a pretty amazing account in history. But Jesus's words came to pass as we're trying to wind this thing down here, we're going to look at a couple more things I want to give you about this blessed hope, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him. Our message today, our gathering together with Him in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, we found um, that Jesus verified and gave all of the building blocks For this doctrine in Matthew 24, though Jesus Christ did not reveal the catching away of the church in its full glory as is revealed in the book of 1 Thessalonians and then verified in 2 Thessalonians and then in Revelation and is shown in typology all throughout the scripture, yet Jesus Christ gave the building blocks and he left the skeleton, the bones there to see it. And again, who was Jesus preaching to in the Olivet Discourse? He was preaching to Israel. That is absolutely. absolutely key. I've listened. If you mix up the church in Israel, you are a mixed up person. The Bible says in Romans, blindness in part hath happened unto Israel. I have never met anybody that thought they were Israel that did not have that curse applied to them to some degree. So whatever they attain to, Whatever they, whether they're trying to keep the law for righteousness, whether they're trying to apply Israeli eschatology to themselves, whatever it is, to the degree that a person becomes high-minded and tries to usurp the position of literal, physical Israel, to that degree they become blinded to plain, honest readings of the scripture. It's an amazing phenomenon to see. God's word is true again. And it's amazing, because here they want to be Israel so bad, and all they get out of the deal is the blindness. Isn't that amazing? Poetic justice, one would say. Revelation, the scope of Revelation, we're not going to go through the book of Revelation today. We, I think we've done that before, I'm not sure. But in Revelation, the scope of Revelation clearly shows us a pre-tribulation Pre-millennial tribulation, a pre-tribulation rapture of the Gentile church. In Revelation chapter 1, again, all through the Bible, you can find God outlines His own books. Stop buying outline books made by preachers and get in the Bible and find the outline that God put in His books for His books and in His chapters for His chapters. If you can find God's outline, you will find sermons to preach and you will find powerful sermons. Not saying I do that all the time, but I strive to. That's what I want to do. In Revelation chapter 1, here he opens with Christ and the church. He's speaking um, on the Lord's day, that is Sunday. The New Testament church, the Gentile church, gathers on the first day of the week, as is set forth in the book of Acts, in remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles would reason in the synagogues on Saturday. Saturday was soul winning day. Above all other days, the apostles would spend Saturday the Sabbath soul winning because that's when people would rest from their labors particularly the Jews and they would enter into the synagogues not to worship Jesus Christ the resurrected Lord but rather to reason with the Jews and they'd get in there and argue with the Jews and argue with the Jews and argue with the Jews about Jesus Christ being the Lord and then on the Lord's Day when all the Jews are back busy making money you find the Christians gathering for worship and prayer and um, the Word of God. So here, John, on the Lord's Day, was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Sunday. He had a visit from the Alpha and Omega, Jesus Christ, who wrote letters to the churches. And here in these churches... We have a full exposition of the church age, a full overview of the church age. But we have here also a outline given to the apostle John whenever he tells, Jesus tells John in verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The three parts of the book of Revelation, chapter one, the things that John saw, chapter two and three, the things which are, and chapters four through the end end of the book, Revelation 22, the things which shall be hereafter. Now, the church age is encompassed in Revelation 2 and 3. At the close of Revelation chapter 3, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We find chapter 4 begins, after this I looked, and behold, a door opened in heaven. Again, Jesus Christ is the door, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up, hither." and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. So there John is taken up immediately after his survey of the church age, a revelation of Jesus Christ to his church and to his churches. Both are there in the Bible, by the way. The local church, um, the local autonomous individual independent local church and the the church in a universal sense, the body of Jesus Christ. Both are there when rightly divided in the word of God. But here this church ends with the rapture. Come up hither. The bride goes up to meet Christ in typology. You do not find the church again until Revelation 19. Whenever you find the saints clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, returning with him to judge the world and to rescue literal Israel. They're catching up, by the way. So at that point, the church is coming down from heaven with Jesus Christ, and the elect will be gathered from the four winds of heaven to meet Christ as he comes, and all together we go down. What happens is a lot of times people apply Israeli eschatology and Israeli rapture doctrines to the church, and then they apply Gentile rapture doctrines to Israel, and they get this all mixed up because they don't recognize the clear truth in Scripture that God God deals with Gentiles and Jews separately, though they are one in Christ. Just like God the Father is one, and Jesus is one, and God the Holy Ghost is one, and these three are one. How do you have three that are one? That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. How do you have the church and the Jew if the church and the Jew are one in Christ? Same way you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and God works that way, and you're going to get over it, or you're going to be a heretic. You've got two choices. God is so clear that the church and Israel are separate. As we close, I'll just give you two types from the Old Testament. In the, before the flood, the old divines, they call them, the old preachers, I don't even like that word, divines, but the old preachers would say, call it the deluge, the deluge, well, whatever you want to call it, the flood, the worldwide global flood. There was a man named Enoch who walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Shortly after that, you have a time of great trouble for Noah, where the whole world is where it's getting worse and worse and worse. And then Noah enters into the ark and goes through the waters of the flood and the earth is purged. And so there you have a picture of the pre-tribulation, rapture of the church, Enoch being a type of the Gentile bride, Noah being a type of Israel. You say, wait a second, I don't hold to that. Well, neither one of them were Israeli. Noah was not an Israelite. Noah was not a Jew. Noah was not of the seed of Abraham, and neither was Enoch. So the game is pretty open field there, and you just have to rightly divide it and put it in its context scripturally and see it as God shows it. So you have Enoch and Noah. Then you have two Jewish men who are used as this type later. You have Elijah, a man who suffered great tribulation... Pay attention here. Elijah's ministry was a very difficult ministry, and he was persecuted. And he's a type in this in this sense. There's many things he's a type of. He's a type of Christ, primarily. But the, and of John the Baptist, primarily. I'm sorry, Elisha being a type of Christ. There's a huge study there. It's wonderful. But in the sense of his catching away whenever there was a chariot and he was caught up to heaven in a whirlwind. The Bible doesn't say chariot, by the way. <clears throat> sorry. Look it up. But when he's caught up to heaven in a whirlwind uh, with the chariot of God that, right there that Elijah saw, and he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof, Elijah's caught up to heaven, what happened? You have Elisha, the faithful Jew, staying to go through the judgment of Israel. And that's what he went through. There was no real repentance in Elisha's entire ministry. He stayed there through the judgment of Israel. And at the end of Elisha's life, he prophesied the destruction of the enemies by the king of Israel. Do you hear me? And then remember, he got mad at the king because the king didn't hit the floor with the arrows enough times, right? So the king didn't fulfill the full picture. And why did God let that happen? Because only Christ is going to fulfill the full picture of what actually happens there. The king of Israel will return and defeat his enemies. But what about old Elijah? He went through a great time of trouble, a great time of testing, a great time of tribulation in the world. And then he was caught up to heaven before the judgment of Israel took place. Oh, there was judgments. There was a drought and all that kind of stuff, but the rain did come. In Elisha's time, you find that there was great judgment on Israel the whole time. If it was not for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not see thee, says Elisha to the king of Israel. King of Israel is off the charts, not even being countenanced by Elisha during that time. There's all kinds of stuff in there we could get into that we can't get into right now. I haven't even studied it out enough to get into it, so we just need to shut this thing down before we get out bounds but here we have several examples we've just given you matthew 24 revelation the full scope thereof enoch and noah elijah and elisha all of it points to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church jesus christ coming back for his bride and then jesus christ coming back for the church the bride of the father israel perfectly separate Again, if you get if you think you're Israel, you're going to be all confused. Israel is going through the tribulation. The Gentile church is not. Father, in Jesus name, we pray that you would just use this word and that you would comfort hearts that none would be shaken in their minds concerning the day of the Lord that it, is, that it is at hand, that you would lose us from such heresies that are clearly denounced in your Bible and that we'd be able to move on to the job at hand, which is taking the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world until the day that you catch us up to be with the Lord. We pray, Lord God, that you would bless this word, bless this work in Jesus' name, for Christ's sake and his glory. Amen.